This is a special call to action to our listeners to financially support this podcast and spread awareness of the Native Plants Dialogue through exclusive Plant Native Nebraska merch at plant-native-nebraska.myspreadshop.com. Wear our designs in your best effort to convert your friends and neighbors, or just simply look cool. Thank you for your continued support in our quest to help Nebraska plant native. Hello, and welcome to the Plant Native Nebraska podcast. I'm your host, Stephanie Barlow. If you are new to tuning in, this show is for native plant enthusiasts, aspiring gardeners, suburban homeowners, growers, and thinkers anxious to learn more about growing Native American plants and creating habitat for wildlife. If this sounds like you, you've come to the right place. In today's episode, Softer Landings, we chat with Heather Holm, pollinator conservationist and author, about leaf litter, the mighty oak, and what we can do to make more habitable habitats and often underutilized understory. Thanks for listening. Hi, Stephanie. Thank you for being with us today, Heather. Um, I'm excited for our topic today because it's not something I'm super familiar with, so I'm kind of filling in gaps Uh, of my own knowledge. But for those of our listeners who haven't already come across your work yet, can you better acquaint us with your research and writing? Sure. And first of all, thanks, Stephanie, for inviting me to be on the podcast. My uh, work really focuses on pollinator conservation and uh, looking at the, you know, the specific interactions between native plants and pollinators, including native bees and predatory wasps. So it's really about that basic level of interaction. I also uh, look at it from an ecological lens. So how are plant communities functioning to support various types of pollinators? And with that, my uh, I've, I've authored four books. Um, so pollinators of native plants, bees, wasps, and then a small, most recently a small pocket field guide, common native bees of the eastern United States. So really just trying to give get some information within those books in the hands of people who are even just starting out thinking about how can I support pollinators in my own garden or at a broader you know, level or scale? How can I enhance ecological restorations with specific native plants to help pollinators? Yeah, I think you've done a great job. Um, just that website, pollinatorsnativeplants.com with all the infographics and posters and handouts that are on there. I think you're doing a great job at getting that message and information to the public. Yeah, and just getting people excited, right? They hear about pollinators, but to have them start planting some of those plants that are really attractive to a wide diversity of flower visiting insects. And then the next step is they start to notice that, right? Once they create the habitat in their own landscape. So it's cultivating curiosity and and better observation of the natural world is really my goal for 
getting people more interested in and caring about pollinators. So I'm kind of curious, um, when you do this kind of research where you're seeing what pollinators are visiting, what plants, I mean, just a little brief explanation of um, what does that look like? How, you know, how do you monitor a plant for activity? For, for writing my books, I would spend a lot of time in various habitats uh, and timing it appropriately for when that specific native plant was blooming to better understand uh, what are the what are the common visitation patterns and what are the primary pollinators that seem to be visiting this plant frequently. And then um, looking at it from a pollination ecology standpoint. So how is the plant, how is it maybe offering floral resources or perhaps its floral shape, uh, its bloom time, all of those things will also influence what kinds of different pollinators may visit that flowering plant. So trying to explain that all um, in my various books, um, but it really does require spending a lot of time sitting in front of plants. So to get to the basics, um, before we get into the topic of soft landings itself in depth, um, for someone maybe newer to the native plants dialogue, keystone plants. When we are talking about keystone plants, what what does that even mean? Well, it can mean a number of different things. So, but generally you can think of a keystone plant as a native plant that is supporting a significant number of interactions with other organisms in a food web. So for example, uh, keystone plants could be uh, pollen specialist bee plants. So we have anywhere from 19 to 49% of native bees that occur in a given state are specializing on a specific type of pollen from a specific plant. So those pollen host plants would be considered keystone plants if they're supporting a number of specialists. For the soft landings concept, keystone plant means that the individual plant, native plant, is hosting a significant number of caterpillars. So it's a larval host plant for butterfly and moth larvae. And so it really, you can think of a keystone plant as a critical node in a complex um, sort of array of interactions, right? So if we remove those key species that have are supporting a significant number of interactions, then the whole food web uh, essentially would collapse if they were removed, so. Mm. Now, what would a few examples of some keystone plants be, or in this case, uh, keystone trees? Because uh, we're a lot of our focus is trees today. Right, for soft landings, the probably the most critical keystone tree uh, would be any species of native oak, so in the genus Quercus. And they tend to occur in almost all counties throughout the U.S., so not just the Midwest. And they're usually hovering in the top three of the, you know, the top keystone plants, meaning they're supporting the most species of caterpillars. So that if you have an oak tree in your yard, <laughs> be sure to cherish that oak tree. And that would be a perfect place to consider putting in a soft landing. I'm thinking another good suggestion, because now that I'm thinking of the number of caterpillars 
um, that are being supported. I'm thinking of that finder. The National Wildlife Federation has like a native plant finder. Yes. You put in your zip code and then they rank all the plant species by how much lepidopteran support it gives, which would be what butterfly and moth species. Right, right. And it includes woody plants, so trees, shrubs, uh, in addition to perennials. And the National Wildlife Federation also has sort of an eco-region level three guides or list for specific areas. So that's a great place to start just to understand on a local level or regional level uh, what would be some of the top keystone plants. And don't don't disregard those perennials because some of those perennials would be ones that you'd want to select for that soft landings planting that we'll talk about. Mm. Now, just to back up just a tiny bit, why are, in like with your education and all the research you've done, why are caterpillars so vital to the food web? Um, is it is it that they provide food for birds in an overwhelming amount of numbers, or are there some other important reasons? Yeah, you, you hit on it perfectly, Stephanie. So you can think of caterpillars uh, and native plants as this critical foundation of a complex food web. And 90, about 96% of terrestrial birds feed their young caterpillars. So they're sort of what my naturalist friend calls giant uh, bags of protein goo. <laughs> and, you know, uh, birds that are nesting are collecting these caterpillars and shoving them down the throats of their of their young and uh, it, they're really critical for bird development. So without keystone plants within the landscape supporting this significant number of caterpillars, uh, it's very, very hard for organisms such as songbirds to, to rear their offspring. Gotcha. So it's kind of like that domino effect where if we take away the keystone plants, we take away the caterpillars, which means the birds don't have what they need to mature into adults. Right. Some people describe, for example, perhaps uh, an, an exotic tree not from North America may not support very many caterpillars or any at all. So those are often characterized as uh, empty bird feeders, right? They're, they're mm. green, they're photosynthesizing, they're growing in a landscape but they're not functioning or uh, providing a, a secondary food source for a lot of those mm. organisms that rely on, uh, you know, that are the herbivores, the foliage eating insects. Yeah, that's a good way of looking at it because, you know, we always think of, well, if, a if we have a big tree, well, birds can make their nests in it, but how much more important to have a bird be able to make a nest in a tree but also be able to forage the tree for food in the immediate surroundings instead of having to fly off and find a tree who knows how far away to get food. Exactly. And that's kind of, I think of it as the same sort of principle, even with pollinators, right? It all comes down to this energy expenditure. So any organism that is trying to uh, feed their offspring within a nest uh, really wants to limit energy expenditure, meaning they're looking for food sources that are close to the nesting site. So having it all in one, <laughs> having a place to nest within a tree if you are a songbird and not having to go very far to find a, a critical supply of the food that you need um, is really ideal as far as a habitat is concerned. Mm. 
So today we're here to talk about the concept of soft landings. Um, but what exactly does all this entail? Does this uh, constitute just leaving leaves under the tree canopy? Or does it also have to do with um, growing plants or having a garden under treescapes? Or what does it all mean? Right. So a soft landings is a concept that my friend Leslie Pilgrim came up with. And uh, it's really based on the research by Doug Tallamy and Desiree Narango, who have done extensive research looking at what are keystone plants for caterpillars and how important those keystone plants are, again, with that association of birds rearing their offspring. So the idea, Leslie came up with the idea that you know, if we have perhaps hundreds of species of caterpillars feeding on oak foliage on an oak tree, uh, at some point in time, many of those caterpillars are going to prepare to pupate, and often they don't stay on their host plant. And so the idea of a soft landing is not just leaf litter under a tree, it's planting a diverse native planting under the drip line of a tree so that it can provide that habitat when some of those caterpillars are preparing to pupate after they leave their host plant tree. So it uh, can include things such as, you know, leaving leaf litter, uh, choosing different native perennial plants that are flowering plants that in addition to providing habitat for caterpillars are providing pollen and nectar for various types of pollinators as well. Okay, yeah, it sounds much more hospitable than just a uh, a sterile island of mulch around a tree. <laughs> right, or worse, right, turf, very heavily turf. compacted turf grass, right? So if you're a caterpillar and you're ready to leave the host plant tree and your habitat below is heavily compacted soil with turf grass, um, then you need to really travel quite a distance to find some safe site to prepare for pupation. So the idea with soft landings is the caterpillar doesn't have to risk, <laughs> uh, you know, going too far if it maybe finds viable habitat close to the tree. And I know you said the word diverse. So if, if we're doing plantings under a tree canopy, or as you said, under the drip line of the tree, um, using a diverse amount of plants would be ideal. So maybe even having things that bloom in spring, things that bloom in summer, things that bloom in fall. Exactly. So we're not talking about just one single plant species or a, a monoculture or ground cover under the tree. Uh, the more diverse, the better. And to your point, Stephanie, uh, having that continuous succession of flowering plants, if possible, when you're planting that planting, then you're going to provide what I call the, the season-long flower buffet for any flower-visiting insects as well. And you also want to think about aesthetics, right? So we don't want to plant really, really tall plants in this planting under a tree. Uh, many people have a large shade tree in their front yard. So many of the plants that we came up with with the plant list are rather low growing. So, you know, anywhere to 18 to 20 inches in height. So it's still sort of looking a little more tidy um, and aesthetically pleasing, especially if this planting is going into a front yard. And I know that later on, we're gonna break down into that list because I, 
I basically took your list and tailored it um, for our area for Nebraska. But going into um, another thing that's important to talk about, insecticides. So I know that um, you guys touch on this because we can we can plant all these plantings and we can have the right tree, but if we're using insecticides, then we're also creating that problem of contaminating that space. Um, so, I mean, how big of a significance does the use of insecticides have uh, in this concept of creating habitable spaces? Right, there's sort of two tracks, I guess, on that topic. Uh, the first one is, most uh, landscape nurseries, whether um, usually the you know the producers of the plant material, are generally using some kind of a systemic insecticide during that tree's production. And so when we purchase a new tree from a retailer, uh, it may have uh, remnants of that systemic insecticide. And with woody plant material, the you know there's still ongoing research, but it's commonly understood that the systemic insecticide can persist for multiple years even after you plant the tree. Oh, wow. So systemic insecticides you know are, are taken up by the tree and then expressed in any of the plant tissue that could be leaves or the flowers, pollen and nectar. So if you plant a brand new tree, uh, what we are sort of discouraging is, uh, waiting to do that soft landings planting until that tree is, you know, it's been in the landscape for, for several years before creating that habitat for insects under the tree. Wow. I guess I never, so, you know, I've thought about insecticide use when it comes to buying perennials. So, you know, a lot of what we buy is local where they say we don't use um, you know, we don't use any insecticides. We, we don't use anything on our plants. But I never thought about that in regards to trees. And I had no idea that it would persist so long in the plant material. Yeah, I mean, here, I'm in Minnesota, we have, uh, we're, we have over 20 native plant nurseries, I believe all of them are growing their, even their woody plant material without systemic insecticides. So as a, you know, a smart consumer, I first recommend people ask, but often you're buying from a retailer and that tree has, you know, gone from a grower to a wholesaler to a retailer. So often the person working at the garden center has no idea about how that plant has been grown. But if you know of specific nurseries that, you know, have declared that they don't use systemics and are growing those trees uh, at a young age and then growing them out, then I would, I would take my money and um, spend it at their nursery. And then on the other hand, um, people are using systemic insecticides or sometimes fungicides to treat established trees in their yard for various reasons. You know, we have a lot of introduced pests, emerald ash borer, for example. What we say on the website is just to weigh the benefits and costs of, you know, sort of prophylactic or uh, regular treatment of a tree, depending on your goals, but to keep in keep it in mind that that may be creating a harmful place for insects, and it wouldn't be a good spot to do a soft landing. Mm, that kind of reminds me. So here we we have a lot of evergreen trees 
and we get bagworms and people spray for bagworms every year. So that would be a situation where that's something that the homeowner is creating uh, a bad environment. I always think too, this is a reason that I prefer planting native deciduous things is you don't have to worry about the bagworms in that situation because the tree is just going to regenerate those leaves every year. Right, exactly. And that for our Midwestern gardens, that it seems to me more appropriate to plant deciduous trees instead of evergreens. So online, I noticed you have really great visuals. So someone who's maybe having a hard time visualizing what we're talking about, there's some really great images um, of these kind of soft landing landscapes that are being created. There was one in particular I saw that had ostrich fern, Pennsylvania sedge, um, wild geranium. It just, it looked very aesthetic, like you said, uh, but I love how it also serves that greater purpose. So basically we're just creating these kind of ground cover spaces in the understory of trees, but we're also creating really vital habitat. Aside from the benefit to like caterpillars per se, is there any other tangible benefit for other pollinators of having these kinds of habitats under trees? Um, the idea of these soft landings is to leave some leaf litter, especially if you're growing uh, what I'd call more woodland or forest species in that soft landings planting. And it's the leaving the leaves. I think most people have heard this about this, but that can provide really critical uh, overwintering habitat for a number of different beneficial insects. So we, uh, for example, uh, bumblebees, the new queen bumblebees, tend to excavate shallow burrows in the ground to hibernate for the winter. They often look for more wooded situations. Uh, fireflies, leaf litter is a very critical component in the firefly oh, wow. life cycle. Uh, ladybird beetles are also known as ladybugs. So you can think of these workhorse beneficial insects and just amazing insects such as fireflies. Uh, they they knew, do need some leaf litter habitat for some part of their life cycle. So this is sort of what I'd call a, a layered approach, right? We've got leaf litter providing some insulation value, some overwintering habitat, and uh, and then the flowering plants within the planting that are quite diverse, offering up pollen and nectar. And perhaps they also can be larval host plants for various caterpillars. Oh, right. I forgot about that because, um, yeah, some of these plants, whether they are uh, suited to growing under trees or they have, a, if you go on that NWF finder, maybe they have a high number of Lepidopteran support. But I also forgot about the host plant concept. Um, so people can go and look up maybe some of these plants that we're going to recommend today and see if it's also a host plant. I know I did see in your book, Pollinators of Native Plants, you try to do a good job of uh, highlighting if that specific plant is a host plant for a specific insect. Right, right. And there's, there's other resources online where you can double check and see if any of these plants have a specific special relationship with an insect. Yep. And also I'd recommend the Audubon website. They have a similar native plant finder tool. So again, you can ent enter your zip code and learn about uh, native plant species that help support birds. Yeah, I, I love how easy it is now for people to find this information because I feel like just maybe six, seven years ago, it was really, really hard 
um, to try to research this stuff. And now there's just more and more out there, just great. Yeah, and it's nice to sort of have those cross purposes documents, the National Wildlife Federation lists the pollen specialist keystone plants alongside the keystone trees and shrubs for caterpillar host plants. So you can get at a glance, you get a, a significant amount of information. That's awesome. Uh, to dive into this plant list, I know, you know, this is off of the tailored list you have online. Um, it's not necessarily for Nebraska, but I've kind of gone through it and selected things that are also native in our area. There's wildflowers, there's grasses and sedges, there's some native ferns. Um, so for the wildflower listing, I saw a wild columbine on there. And that's, I mean, just aesthetically, it's a little cheerful plant that seeds around everywhere. But is that a specific plant that is a host plant for anything? You know, um, off the top of my head, I don't believe so. And I'd probably have to go look at my own book, but there is a unfortunately introduced sawfly that uh, will consume the foliage of wild columbine. It's a great pollinator plant, of course. The the red flowers uh, here, it tends to bloom. It, the bloom coincides when the ruby-throated hummingbirds are arriving north. So for that spring splash of color, and you'll also find some small sweat bees and bumblebees that do visit wild columbine flowers. Yeah, that's just a good one to have in a shady area and it tolerates a little bit of sun too. So it's kind of versatile. I've got two here or actually quite a bit here um, that are more shade tolerant, wild ginger. Uh, mm -hmm. What can you tell us about that one? Wild ginger is a very low growing um, sort of roundish glossy green leaves. People do use that plant as a ground cover and it, it grows in forests. So on moist uh, on moist understories and cool slopes. And it has the most curious flowers, which are underneath these very low uh, four or five inch high leaves and they're maroon colored. And um, I, it, there's debate about what actually pollinates wild ginger. <laughs> could be ants, it could be other sort of ground-dwelling insects. And the uh, so it's it's really fun. You can lift up that that low leaf and see the flowers in spring. So it's sort of rhizomatous. It has, I would say, above ground root systems and it will spread fairly quickly. So you and it looks very nice as far as uh, having a, that mixed with other plant textures such as ferns or sedges or woodland grasses. Yeah, I think that one's a good substitute for hosta. If someone loves the look of hostas, but they want to have something that's creating more habitat, that's native, that would be a good one because the leaves are very similar. Yes, and that'd be something you could use as a border, right, to define the edge of the planting and what may be turf grass next to it. So it's kind of this nice low transition plant. Now there's two that are kind of more the spring ephemeral plants. So we have may apple and bloodroot. Um, do those have some vital importance for any pollinators? Yeah, bloodroot, uh, especially it, uh, as people listening may know, it flowers pretty early in the spring, one of the first plants to bloom. And the flowers are actually nectarless. So just oh. producing a significant amount of pollen and you'll find some of the first emerging 
solitary bees really uh, rely on bloodroot pollen. And I just think the the sort of singular, single leaf that comes with that flower is it's like a little satellite dish. It's it's interesting even after the flower has sort of faded and gone away. So it does, um, you know, the, that leaf does persist for fairly long into the growing season, which also provides some interest. Okay, that's cool. Um, what about the May apple? That's one I haven't grown myself, so I don't know much about that one. Yeah, they May apple is a little bit taller, probably you know, 10 to 12 inches, and it looks like a miniature umbrella. And then sort of halfway up that that flower stalk is where the, the flower occurs, and it's a large white flower. Um, that one is also tricky as far as what maybe historically pollinated that flower or <laughs> who its specific pollinators may be. And uh, after the flower is pollinated, it produces this um, sort of apple, not apple shape, but sort of um, swollen fruit capsule that looks, some people say it looks like an apple. That's how it got its name. That's interesting. I didn't know that. Um, wild geranium, is this one an important one for pollinators that you've observed? Yeah, I, I think that one is really important. It does support one spe pollen specialist bee, a type of mining bee, but I think it's a great versatile plant. You see it growing in more open oak savannas, oak woodlands. It can tolerate, uh, you know, a variety of conditions, sort of moist soils, trending into drier soils. And I just think the, the flower is, is really attractive. And, and in addition to the foliage, so this time of year, the foliage in autumn starts to turn a bright red. So you get a few seasons of interest out of wild geranium. Nice. Yeah. I like, uh, I like that you brought up fall color because we always think we need, or I guess we have been told that we need exotics to get this great color in the fall, but actually we can get some of that from regionally appropriate plants. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so now shorts aster is on the list. Uh, was there a reason why you picked that aster instead of a lot of the other native asters that we have? Well, we were thinking of um, the aster species that are were more tolerant of shade, given that the planting is going to be under, a, you know, the drip line of a tree. So shorts aster can tolerate partial shade. It's it's a absolutely beautiful aster, a little bit taller, but um, the clusters of really kind of violet blue flowers. I find it's one that blooms a little bit later in the in that sort of fall succession of asters. So it's going to give those remaining pollinators still active some pollen and nectar sources at the end, right before we close down the growing season. Yeah, and I know that asters are a good bee favorite. Um, so that's definitely a good bee forage plant. Yeah, and they are a keystone larval host plant. They support a really significant number of pollen specialist bees as well. So I encourage people to have typically at least three aster and three goldenrod species in their garden if possible. Oh, awesome. Yeah, I I love asters and goldenrods. I feel like you just can't have enough of them. That's me, but I feel like that should be everybody too. <laughs> you just have to avoid the, the few that are uh, a little aggressive, such as the Canada goldenrod <laughs> yeah. and, and related species. But we have a number of really nice clump forming and 
better behave goldenrods that are appropriate for gardens. Right on. Uh, for sedges and grasses, um, I saw Pennsylvania sedge really stood out to me because I think that's a really attractive, versatile one. Um, if you had to choose between Pennsylvania sedge and Sprangles sedge, is there a favorite? Are they both really valuable to this kind of garden? They they both, um, I like them both. So I, that would be a hard choice. The Pennsylvania sedge, um, I would say people would easily mistaken it for turf grass because it's low growing. It uh, sort of flops over and it's a nice dark green sort of turf grass looking plant. And it also spreads by rhizomes. So it's, um, you know, will kind of weave its way through other plants that you have in a planting, or I've seen people using it as a standalone, just Pennsylvania sedge as a turf alternative. Um, Sprangle sedge is a little bit taller, so it can get, you know, 12 to 14 inches tall. And then in the spring produces these long arching stalks uh, with the flowers at the end. Uh, but I like that just to mix up the heights and textures. The other thing to keep in mind, if you're not familiar with sedges, sedges are cool season plants. So they are green as soon as uh, the snow melts. If you live in an area with snow or, you know, first thing in the spring, you've got this plant that's bright green and provides some initial interest and that mm. they they kind of fill that void with when we wait for our warmer season prairie grasses because they take much longer to come out of dormancy and start to grow so it's nice to have a mix of these cool season sedges and then the warm season um, prairie grasses now, if a, if a plant is a cool season grass, um, does that mean when it warms up that it kind of starts looking less green and then the warm season plants are the ones that are greening up at that point? Is that how that works? Yeah, I find for many of the cool season sedges, as long as they're not in you know, extremely dry conditions, they'll, they'll, they will remain green throughout the growing season, but they kind of have their, their day in the sunlight, as you want to say, <laughs> in spring, you know, when they're putting on a lot of new growth, uh, they sort of fade into the background because other plants are shining throughout the summer. But then in autumn, again, they, when, you know, our temperatures start to get cooler, they, they sort of green up and say, hey, I'm still here. And so they really complement a lot of those fall blooming flowering plants. So it's, I'd say they have sort of a cyclical um, role in, in the growing season. Now with Carex Brevior or bottle brush grass, um, would these be a good choice to add some more versatility and diverseness to this kind of garden? Absolutely. So Carex Brevior, you have, uh, you know, finer blades or narrower blades. So sort of different texture, looser uh, form. And then bottle brush grass, which is in the genus Elimus, those, it is also a cool season grass. So in, in addition to uh, the native wild rice, so they are uh, again, gonna be native grasses that green up earlier in the spring. Um, and they tend to be more shade tolerant, a lot of our cool season native okay. grasses. Oh, that's good to know. Um, for ferns, um, it looks like I saw three ferns that are native to our area, lady fern, marginal fern, maiden hair fern. 
Um, what can you tell us about the importance of using these? I just like using ferns to really mix up the the textures of the, of the different foliage within a planting. Um, ferns often are coming in a little bit later. You know, they take longer to unfurl and um, produce their fronds. So you can have that really early spring interest with plants such as bloodroot and uh, some of the ephemerals doing their thing. And then ferns will kind of come up through that layer and shine, uh, you know, mid-spring. So, and then remain, you know, you know, through the, through the growing season. I really like lady fern for drier sites. So if really understanding the type of soil you may have for your, before starting your planting. Maidenhair fern tends to grow on more, in more cool, moist conditions. So would not be appropriate for, a, you know, really dry soils or dry situation. Gotcha. I think it's great. We talked about this in regards to just having ideas for shade gardens, because I know some people, you know, are more acquainted with things that are growing in full sun and these prairie style plants. So I think too, it's kind of like we're hitting two birds with one stone. We're talking about soft landings and creating this great habitat, but also kind of demystifying the shade garden a little bit. Right. And the, the same design principles apply. I mean, you could um, do a, you know, you can start with a grass sedge combo matrix as your base and then plug in your various flowering plants and clusters of ferns. And that's going to produce a really, you know, beautiful mix of uh, textures, foliage textures, as well as if you plant it well, uh, as we've said, you know, that continuous succession of flowering plants through the growing season. Well, uh, if there's one ultimate takeaway from our short chat today, uh, what do you think it should be? Well, as far as soft landings are concerned, I think it's just a really easy place for people to start if they don't have a garden or they just purchased a property and they're wondering where where do I start <laughs> and putting a, a small planting under the drip line of an existing native tree in your yard is you know it's a it's a smaller tangible project and and it also I think encourages a lot of the what I call basic ecological gardening principles so using native plants um, leaving some leaf litter in appropriate spaces. And then it also encourages that idea that a garden is more than just a pretty place for people to enjoy it. It and can provide function and habitat for various organisms. Well, wonderful. I've, I've learned a few things today myself, so I'm really grateful for our talk. Uh, it was a pleasure having you on. Thanks, Stephanie. Thank you for tuning in to the Plant Native Nebraska podcast. If you need notes on anything mentioned in today's episode, check our website, plant-native-nebraska.captivate.fm for more info. I want you to know you've made this podcast special just by listening in. But if you found real value in today's talk, you can both financially support future episodes and dive deeper into the topics we share by finding us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash plant native Nebraska. Thanks for listening.